0: So uh, last week, uh, we, we, we looked at how in the Gospel of John, um, resistance to the ministry of Jesus begins. It's a really astonishing thing that in this story of the hero of our faith as Christians, um, one of the main themes of the story is that the people around him really uh, resisted him and uh, to the point where they actually put him to death. They gave him the death penalty. They didn't just kill him, but they said uh, first, or well, they put him on trial, they said legally he should die, and then they killed him. That's an amazing part of our story. And last week we saw that the religious leaders resisted Jesus to the point where they actually felt the desire to begin to persecute him and kind of move towards uh, plotting his murder. Um, so that was last week. This week we see that not only the religious leaders, but even his own followers... Even the ones who knew him and trusted him, uh, we see here that they also abandoned him. And so in, in, in the, the first part, we didn't read this, but just before the part I read, there are these 5,000 um, men, older men, and their whole family. So that's probably around 12,000 in all. And uh, they are, it's probably more than 12,000, but let's just say 12,000. They are all with him. He's fed them all from just a few loaves and fishes. It's one of those miracles. I don't have any idea how that could have happened. But apparently he took just a few uh, loaves of bread and a few fish. And he fed this entire crowd of, let's say, 12,000 plus people. So now they are so excited that they call him the Messiah. Um, this is back in verse 14 of John 6. But they say, uh, this indeed is the prophet who is to come into the world. And what they're saying there is that he is the new Moses, the second Moses, the Messiah. And then it says in verse 15, they were about to come and make him the king. So they are ready, all this, these people were ready to make him the king. They said, this is the Messiah. But in the end of this chapter, so that's, that's up in the teens, 13, 14. If you go to verse 66 at the end... And I didn't read that either, but look at verse 66 at the end of the chapter. It says many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. We don't know how many, but it looks like at the end of this, um, there are just a handful of people left. Probably his 12 disciples and maybe a few more. So we've gone from in the thousands down to just a small amount. And I guess the question would be is, uh, is what happened to them? And why did they suddenly stop following Jesus. And I think that, that, that might give us insight in, into our own um, desire to follow him, our own decision uh, or, um, or not to follow him. But what, what is this that happens to this crowd of so many thousands of people that, that most of them, by far the majority, leave him? And I would say that uh, the reason that they leave him is because um, their discipleship, their following him, was based on this massive uh, delusion This spiritual delusion about what he's about, what he's like. I would say it's actually based on two of them. Uh, And the first one probably got the majority of the crowd. Uh, Namely that that it is very easy for human beings to think of God in whatever way they imagine God. To be almost like a cosmic vending machine where you put in your faith or your, your good works or whatever it is. You put in that coin and then you find the thing you want on the vending machine. You pull the lever and it comes out. And I think that's the way they viewed God. The way they viewed Christ as a kind of a vending machine. It says in verse 26 that Jesus told them, you're seeking me because you ate your fill of the loaves. So he knew that's why they were following him because they, they wanted stuff out of him. Uh, the second delusion I think that people are under, and this is a little bit more uh, pernicious because it's harder harder to see and detect this. Perhaps not as common, but very dangerous. But in verse 28, you would think that this is a, a good thing that they say here. You would think they've learned from the whole vending machine delusion, um, but, but what they say in verse 28 is, what must we do to be doing the works of God? So I think they get the fact that he's not a vending machine, but now they, they have come under the second delusion, I would say, which is that God is kind of a talent scout who's on the lookout for very virtuous people, and then those virtuous people he will bring into his group and uh, create a more and more uh, virtuous group of people. That's that God is a talent scout for virtue, basically. And I would say that's a delusion. It's, it's, there's some truth to it. There's some truth to the first one also. God definitely wants to give people good things. But in both of these cases, uh, these are delusions. So that's what I want to begin with. And then I want to end with what clarity looks like. Um, if you really understand what God is like, um, what, what do you see? What does this passage tell us about what God is really like? So first of all, he's not a vending machine. That's the first point. And um, I would say that all the excitement that he's the Messiah and that he's the king is based on this false idea um, that he can give people what they want. You see in verse 24 that the crowd uh, sees that Jesus was not there. And so they they get into their boats and they go to find him. They were on the shore of this major lake, Lake uh, Galilee. Uh, He left under cover of darkness because he didn't want them to maintain that that illusion about him. So he leaves them at night. He goes back to Capernaum where he's stationed, his his kind of ministry center. And then they realize that he's not, so they come and they find him somewhere in Capernaum. And not only do they find him, but they chide him like you would a child in verse 25. When did you come here? And what they're saying there is, how long have you been here? And why didn't you tell us? And how, when were you going to tell us? So they're very upset with him because he's basically taken away uh, what they wanted, which was, the gifts that, that God gives the bread in this case and they're so upset by it that he basically tells them the truth here in verse 26 what he's really saying there is you don't really care about me um, you, you don't realize that I am the bread of life you just want the bread that I can give you that's what he's telling them there and this is an expose of again this first delusion and the, the idea is that God came to earth so it's broader than just bread It's easy to make fun of them for thinking that it's about bread. It's not just about bread. The major idea here is that that God came to this planet to basically make our lives a little less difficult. And to make the life that we have in this world more enjoyable, uh, more comfortable. To take away some pain, some suffering. To give a little more pleasure. um, To fulfill our dreams even. To answer our prayers. Kind of the way that Disney portrays, you know, when you wish upon a star and you, whenever you, whatever you want to dream or dream uh, will come true if you really want it enough. That's the kind of idea that a lot of people have about God. I mean, I prayed for snow this week. I prayed for a lot of snow. And on, I believe it was Monday, it was like a half an inch at most was forecast. I have weather underground, so it shows you the uh, curves of both the temperature curve and the precipitation curve, and I saw them like lining up. I kept praying that those that the blue precipitation curve would grow, the temperature curve would drop. They would intersect with a lot of snow, and I prayed and prayed, and it, it snowed. I was watching the end of the uh, the Saints Vikings game last Sunday, and uh, you know I didn't really care that much until the end. And I was like, okay, I'm going to pray that the Vikings would win this game, just because. It was the home crowd and all that stuff. And then sure enough, one of the greatest plays in NFL history occurred. And they won. God answered. And so I'm not saying either that I'm a great prayer or that God is bad for answering prayers. I think you should pray prayers like that. I think that's fine. The problem is that you go from thinking that God loves to take care of his children and he listens to his children to thinking that he's like a genie. And if I, you know, like Aladdin, if I rub this bottle, the genie comes out and he grants me three wishes. Or maybe a better analogy is like a Chick-fil-A employee. Because basically they're there to serve you, to give you whatever you want to do with a smile and to say, my pleasure. It's my pleasure to do it. And that's the way we think about God. That he's this really nice guy, that uh, he's an incredible servant who comes here to give you your dreams and the things that you really want. The the great culprit here, you may know, is Joel Osteen. And I hate to burst anyone's bubble if they're a big Osteen fan. Well, I don't hate to burst your bubble. I I, I hear say, let your bubble be burst. Because the man uh, is wrong about this point. Um, He wrote a book called Your Best Life Now. And the title itself is ridiculous. He wrote a book called uh, Be a Better You, uh, Every Day of Friday. He wrote a book called You Can, You Will. And, and there are sequels to all of those. And in one quote, he suggests uh, that God exists to bless us. He says, God wants us to be consistently increasing and rising to new heights. God wants to increase you financially by giving you promotions and fresh ideas and creativity. And um, that's, I'll end it right there. But it's easy to scoff at uh, Osteen, he is clearly a very, the American dream uh, kind of spiritualized is what you have with Joel Osteen. It's easy to laugh at that and to scorn that, but I think he really is um, tapping into something that we all feel is true of God. That the creator of the universe exists um, to give us things. That he kind of owes us something and that um, I, I feel like I would get very angry with God if he didn't give me certain things or if he took certain things away from me. I mean, think about um, just as a father, if, if a child gets sick, um, if, if a child is in danger, I, I, I'll get very mad at God because I feel like that's something, um, of all things, that is for sure is something that he should be doing uh, to protect me and my family. Or, or marriage... Um, Or your physical health or your mental health. These are things we feel like if if God took these things from me, um, I might just turn away from him. I might stop following him because that's really the deal with me and God is that uh, he is there uh, to help me, to help me get what I want to get. And uh, this is not a new problem in America. It's obviously not a new problem in the whole world because it was happening back in Jesus' day. But in 1831, a a famous Frenchman named Alexis de Tocqueville traveled around America. And he he wrote a book about this. And uh, he listened to many sermons of many preachers in our country. And he wrote, "Uh, I couldn't tell whether the principal object of religion is to... Procure eternal felicity in the other world or prosperity in this. He wrote that in 1831. He couldn't tell from the sermons of all these American preachers whether the main point of religion was your best life now or eternal bliss after death. And he probably couldn't tell today either. It's it's definitely an American problem. Um, But it's a universal problem. And so Jesus says in verse 27, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. And that's not an angry command. Don't think of Jesus scowling when he says that. That is a compassionate warning to you and I, his children. um, That um, if you try to work all the time for uh, good grades, or if you're always working to be popular... Um, if you're working constantly to have good physical health or to, have, uh, to be beautiful, uh, to have a good career, if you're always working for romance or if you're always working for your children, and a lot of these are very good things, but uh, if, if, if he said, if you're working for food that perishes, if you're investing in those things, you're going to be disappointed. It cannot go well. At some point, things are going to fall apart. It's kind of like investing in Kodak or Blockbuster Video or Yahoo or the infamous Palm Pilot. If you invested in those things, it's not going to go well for you. And the same way Jesus says, if you invest in certain things, and we all do, right? We all have a lot of eggs in these baskets. Then something's going to happen in life and it's going to crack. So he says, work for a food, a bread that does not perish. I was with a a therapist one time, and partly I I say that to you to say, you know, if you see a therapist, um, I think it's a very brave thing to do. And I was once with a therapist, and we were talking about what really makes for a good day. And she handed me a sheet of yellow paper and a pen, and she said, uh, Ben, write down what a good day, a productive day, a successful day would look like for you. It's a really good exercise to think about. It's a good thing to go home and do uh, with someone who's a friend. Maybe do them together and exchange the papers and talk about what you have written down and try to be honest. I was trying to be honest, but, I was, but I'm a pastor. She knows I'm a pastor, so I had to polish it up a little bit. I did not mention the importance of iced tea or good food or um, a victory for my favorite sports team. Those were not on my list. But even the edited version that I wrote down and showed to her... Um, It uh, it included a lot of food that perishes, a lot of things that are going away, uh, that are going to be disrupted. And if I um, put my hope uh, and put the weight of my happiness and joy in those things, uh, I'm going to be very disturbed and broken. And that's the first spiritual delusion, is that God is here to help us have a good day like a Trader Joe's cashier who's always asking you how you're doing. Can I get anything more for you? They're smiling. They're making jokes. It's so easy, especially in a land of such prosperity. There has never been any place in the history of the world like America where so many people enjoy so much prosperity. And how could we not be fooled into thinking that God is like a vending machine? So uh, we especially have to be careful about that first delusion and not to follow God for that reason. Uh, The second delusion, which I said earlier is more pernicious because it's more subtle, is that God is basically a talent scout. And he's on the lookout for the great moral and spiritual athletes out there. And he's trying to recruit you to come and join his team. Because he's trying to gather a group of people who are really virtuous. And that's what the people come to when they say in verse 28, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Uh, What kind of good works should we be doing? To have eternal life. That's what they're saying there. Uh, The the Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, who, good and bad, and this guy, uh, mostly good, I think. uh, But he's a very, I, I wouldn't even recommend you read him. Because he's so hard to understand that you'll just give up trying. But here's part of the essence of his view of life, Soren Kierkegaard. That he thought there were two great spiritual insights that a person could have in life. And uh, that these insights could come and pierce through your delusions about reality. And the first one, he thought, was when a person realized that life is about more than perishable food. Uh, He thought that uh, at some point in life, hopefully a person, this doesn't necessarily happen, but they'll move out of thinking of life as a place for enjoyment and ease and comfort and convenience and entertainment. And move to a place where they realize that uh, the great adventure in life is virtue. And the great uh, adventure in life is to become a good person. It's not about uh, exploring other countries or um, delving into science, or reading great works of literature, uh, enjoying fine wine. Those are all good things, but he called that the aesthetic phase of life. And he said, there's an insight that everyone should come to, though not all do, where you realize that the great adventure in life is to be honest. To learn, it's very hard to learn how to be sacrificial, or brave, or kind, or disciplined, or forgiving. And that's the first spiritual insight. I remember in college, I remember I was a junior in college, I had a philosophy course on Immanuel Kant. And uh, it hit me in that course that life is more than video games and sports and food, which is what I thought it was about. I really did. Um, And I came to believe that there was actually this objective moral law that is a big part of Immanuel Kant's teaching, and that I should try to live this way. And that was really meaningful to me. Uh, He called it the categorical imperative. And the categorical imperative is that you should always act in a way that you would want everyone to act towards everyone. So being consistent. And he actually thought that it was a better formulation than uh, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. He thought he had kind of outdone Jesus there. But um, I thought that 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 that's the way you should live. You should always act in a way that you would want everyone to act. A kind of consistent, universal, categorical imperative. And so that, that moment of clarity for me is when I realized that um, life is not about just bread, the bread that, that God can give, and that I moved into what should I be doing to be doing the works of God. And I hope that everyone here has passed through that aesthetic phase into the ethical phase, and you're aware that virtue and morality are much more important than all things aesthetic. But there's another insight. And Kierkegaard thought this was much more important. And this is now moving into my second point, which is shorter, about spiritual clarity. Uh, The second important insight in life is when you move from what must we do to be doing the works of God, which is verse 28, into this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom God has sent and that is when you really get what life is about. When you realize it is not about being ethical. It's about receiving grace and believing in Jesus Christ to give you complete grace and forgiveness and freedom. And now this is moving into point um, two, clarity. Clarity is when uh, you realize that it's not about the works you should be doing, plural. Notice how they say, what works should we be doing He says there's only one work. He corrects them. Uh, There's only one work. And that work is actually passive. That work is simply to receive uh, eternal life as a gift. That's what he says. They're saying, what kind of virtuous life should we live to gain eternal life? And he says, believe in him who God has sent to give you eternal life. Verse 29. And I would say this is the essence of spiritual clarity. That eternal life does not come through good works, but it comes through faith. And when the crowd realized that he was saying that, I think another large percentage left him and abandoned him. And I would say that faith is throwing yourself on the mercy of Christ. Uh, Verse 33, he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. You realize that I cannot generate eternal life in myself in any way, that it has to come down from heaven and be given to me. That's, That's faith. And, you know, then you would ask, okay, but what is eternal life? What are you talking about here when you say eternal life? And I would say it's it's not just a lot of happiness. It's not just the happiness you experience now times ten. It's a different kind of happiness and joy uh, altogether. It is is not that you're a moral person. As important as that is, that is not eternal life. Eternal life is when you relish Jesus, God incarnate, uh, as if he is uh, like fresh... Uh, baked bread. Something delicious and nourishing that you, uh, that you just yearn for. It's satisfying. It's delightful. I am the bread of life. Verse 35. I think eternal life is when you really believe that. That, that real bread, both the nourishment of it and the enjoyment of it, come in a personal relationship with Christ. The God who came down from heaven. Um, faith is when you realize that it's, it's not about attaining a certain level of virtue. And again, I would say virtue is an important thing. But um, faith is when you realize that it's not about a certain level of virtue. But to know that uh, Christ came down from all the joy of heaven and plunged into this place of sadness and darkness and violence and racism. He plunged into this world uh, to give us joy, to give us the joy of heaven. Uh, Verse 38, I have come down from heaven. So virtue is important, but it's not the same thing as the bread of life. It is not the same thing as understanding that God came down from heaven to fill us with his life, to give us the life of the world, as he says. In uh, 1991, it was October of 1991, I uh, climbed the 551 stairs in St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. And I don't know if anyone else has done that, but it's a harrowing adventure, especially for someone who's six foot six. There are certain passageways that are extremely narrow and certain ceilings that are very low. And I really didn't know, uh, it's like that dream I have all the time of going into a cave, it gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And then you realize you can't really get back. That's how climbing St. Peter's felt to me. And we summited the dome and we were out of breath, and we were looking over at the glory of the city of Rome, and suddenly uh, an elevator door opens up, and these elderly tourists come out. And I'm like, all, all that effort. And I just had to push a single button and be taken to the very top. And when you're talking about St. Peter's Basilica, that's uh, 450 feet. But uh, what if it's Mount Everest? What, uh, what if you were summiting the, uh, the last of the Hillary Stairs... Probably no one in here has climbed Mount Everest. And suddenly, as you're getting to the very top, uh, you realize there's a ski lift on the other side. And there are people who are just coming up. All these tourists taking pictures up there, um, coming up the ski lift. I think spiritual clarity is when you realize that, uh, that no one has ever climbed Mount Everest spiritually. That um, Jesus had to come down from there. And that uh, no one uh, makes it up to the top on their own willpower. In some ways, you have to make the effort to be virtuous to even understand this. If If you have no cares in the world about being virtuous or good or moral, then this doesn't even really matter to you. But if you're really making an attempt to be virtuous, then you realize that you cannot get there on your own. And that Christ alone can take you there. Because he's come down from there. And it's kind of like an elevator. You walk into him. I think this is a great analogy of faith, is you just walk into Christ, and you hit that button, and he takes you up. Or you just put all your weight on him, like a, a chair on a ski lift, and he takes you up. He does all the work. And you simply passively receive, from beginning to end, from faith at the very beginning to faith at the very end. It's always faith. And he's taking you up the whole way. And there's an element of it where you're passive in all of that stuff as he lifts you up to the top. He does all the work. In some ways you could say he even puts you on the ski lift and he closes the lap bar and he pulls the lever that takes you up. He not only gives you, um, takes you up there through faith, he, he gives you the faith itself. And this is one of the really hard parts of this passage. And I know that uh, some of you who are really listening carefully were squirming at this point, because this is a really hard thing to believe. Um, there's a couple of really difficult parts of this passage. One of them is verse 44. And uh, it says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Now, I'm not going to go into all the difficult implications of that. And I know there are many. Why doesn't he draw everyone? Um, but one thing that's very clear about this is that he's using a verb that is, that is often used of fishermen dragging in nets. Filled to overflowing with fish. And so it, it takes, it's very hard to draw them in. I thought of another analogy. When I take my dog, Lucky, on a walk, and he, he stops at a fire hydrant and wants to sit there for a long time and smell and so forth, I have to drag him. I have to take that, that uh, leash and drag him. And that's what it means to draw. So it's a pretty strong verb and so what this is what Jesus is saying here John Calvin did not write this by the way this is written by Jesus Christ of Nazareth and what he's saying here is that uh, you have to be drawn and you know when my dog uh, is trying to resist me he braces his neck he stiffens his paws and that's kind of like we all do that and God draws us in he has to in other words he has to give us the faith we don't even want to get on that elevator we don't even want to get on the ski lift he kind of drags us on there and so if you have faith, here's one thing that's very important and implication. If you have faith, if you have this spiritual clarity that is all about Christ from first to last, um, you cannot take any credit for that at all. And I want you to let that sink in. That um, that moment of clarity is completely a gift. In, in no way could my dog take credit for leaving the fire hydrant. In no way could the fish take credit for being drawn in by the fishermen. In no way could you take credit at all for having faith. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. This is not another spiritual achievement. God is not a talent scout for virtue, nor is he a talent scout for faith. He's not looking around for who's going to have faith and hoping they might come to him. The great missionary and theologian Leslie Newbingen says that it is impossible that my perceptions, as distorted as they are, by the fact that I try to make myself the center of the world, could of themselves recognize and receive the presence of God in Christ. It's just another way of saying no one can come to Christ unless the Father draws him. It is impossible that my perceptions, as distorted as they are by my self-centeredness, could of themselves recognize and receive the presence of God in Christ. In other words, you have to have your your windshield cleaned by God to be able to see clearly what's out there. And I'm not a a huge fan of the word seeker. We talk about seekers sometimes, like, you know, she's a seeker. She doesn't yet believe, but she's investigating Christ. And hopefully one day she'll believe because she's a seeker or he's a seeker. Christians use that word a lot. Um, It kind of implies that Jesus is just sitting there still in a cave, like waiting to be found. And there are all these people out there just looking for him everywhere, having a hard time finding him, and thinking, like, why is Jesus hiding from me? That's not the picture at all that Jesus gives you. Uh, the reality is, uh, verse 44 again, no one can come unless the Father draws. And that leads to a second piece of good news. Not only is um, is faith a gift where he draws you in, but if he draws you in, if he's the one who initiates the whole thing, then he's not going to let you get back out. Because he started it, he's going to finish it. And so in verse 37, it says that all the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will not cast out. Because I was the one that drew them in. And so if you're in, I'm not going to cast you out. Because I overcame your willpower to get you in. And now that you're in, why would I suddenly cast you back away? The the, the logic is so clear that the Father initiates everything, and so he will complete everything. And again in verse 39. Just to make sure that our spiritual delusions are completely annihilated, Jesus says, I will lose nothing of all that he has given me. I will raise it up on the last day." He does all the work. No one gets on the elevator at St. Peter's Basilica and fails to get off at the top. If you get on the bottom, he takes you to the top. Grace from first to last. Paul said it in the uh, letter to the Philippians. I am confident of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion.